Some of you remember a, a couple years ago, the Army had a marketing slogan, let, uh, be all you can be. In other words, let the Army help you develop your potential and reach your potential. Well, this morning, the focus of the message is going to be on, uh, on becoming all you were meant to be. And in other words, allowing God to help you reach uh, your, the potential that he has for you, the, the dream that he has, the unique dream that he has for each one of us. And, and how that happens. Um, there's a lot in the study notes this morning. Uh, you may have noticed that. You may have mistaken, you may have bypassed the pile and mistaken it for a copy of the Lansing State Journal because it had all the, you thought it had all the ads in it. But it, it really has a lot of tools and resources for you this morning. So if you don't have one of those and, and you'd like to have one, would you just raise your hand? Because I have somebody strategically positioned here to give you one. Scott is right here and he's going to run you over one if you would just raise your hand. Okay. Looks like everybody's got one, Scott, that, that uh, wants one. Let's go to God in prayer before we start. Dear Father, we, uh, I thank you for these folks this morning. There are a lot of places that they could be this morning uh, rather than new hope. And so I, I thank you for their desire to know you more deeply and to walk with you more closely and to please you in every aspect of their lives. And I ask you to honor that this morning. I ask you to pour out your spirit on this place. We know that nothing of any, any eternal significance will happen apart from your Holy Spirit this morning. And so uh, we ask that you pour out your spirit, that you open our hearts to the truth of your word, and that you empower me as I share your word this morning. And uh, all for your glory, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark uh, is away for the weekend. If you don't know me, I'm Gary Post. I'm the associate pastor here. And... Uh, if you don't have a copy of the study notes, this would be a good morning to have them. So um, if there's, is there somebody that doesn't have a copy of those study notes that would like a copy? If so, we'll have, have somebody run out and get some. Okay. Nobody willing to raise their hand anyway. All right. Well, if you decide, feel free to get up and, and walk out in the lobby and get, get one if you need one. I put a lot of information in there because it will save you a lot of note-taking. Uh, the scriptures, the notes, the quotes... Everything is in there this morning, and I, I like people to be able not only to follow along, adults learn, learn better when they can follow along in logical progression, but also that uh, you can take it with you, you see, and, and it, it just reinforces learning, allows you to focus on that in your uh, devotions, and so on. So I, I think it's just a more effective way to learn. You know, many people uh, leave life with a great many regrets. Many uh, die full of regret. Um, and, and there is a, a young woman named uh, Bronnie Ware, who is an Australian hospice nurse, actually, and she compiled uh, the top ten regrets that she heard from her dying patients over a period of time. And the, the first one being, I wish I'd had the courage to live life in a way that fully realized my dreams and aspirations. Many people die unfulfilled, don't they? And they wish that they could hit the, hit the redo button the do-over button, hit that button and, and start over again. Uh, and of course, that isn't possible. The, the second most mentioned was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard and had made more time for my family. In her comments about this list, she said that every man that she cared for as he was dying mentioned that uh, he had this particular regret. Uh, it's really true, isn't it, the saying that uh, nobody when they dies wished they had spent more time at the office. Right? 
we all wish we'd spent more time with our family, perhaps, and nurtured those relationships. I wish I'd had the courage to express my genuine feelings. Some hold back telling others uh, what they mean to them, for example, and, and until it's too late. And, and so that was a, a regret. I should have said, I love you a lot more. We can all learn from that. I should have spoken my mind instead of holding back and becoming resentful and an angry person. I should have been the bigger person and resolved my conflicts with other people. Uh, some of us have uh, fractured relationships and estrangements and alienations among our family and friends because we let something small uh, fester and become something big and sometimes those alienation periods are, are years long. And so this was a regret for many people. I wish I'd had children. I should have saved more money for my retirement. Can you relate to that? I, I wish I'd had the courage to live truthfully as the person I really am instead of, for example, the person I thought others wanted me to be. And finally, I, I wish I'd known earlier that happiness is a choice that we can make. You know, we can't always control our circumstances, but we can always control our response to those circumstances, uh, especially um, as followers of Jesus Christ. You notice that, uh, that all of these are, are regrets uh, about not becoming the person that they hoped that they would be in this life. Uh, and there's a note of despair here, at, as if this life is all there is. Now, there's no recognition here that, that the choices in this life that we make also impact eternity for us, also impact our, our future in eternity. Uh, Dale Partridge says, and I, I love this quote, he says, our, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Uh, the good news for us as Christians is we can choose to live a life that matters to God uh, for now and for eternity. We can choose to fulfill his purposes uh, for our life. The point that Dale's making with that quote is that it's possible to arrive at the end of your life and realize that you had the ladder up against the wrong wall. You, you see? Jesus recognized the same thing in the, in the parable of the sower. If you remember, some call it the parable of the soil. Uh, but he, he mentioned three things that would keep us from realizing God's purposes for our lives. He said that they are, in Mark 4.19, they are the, the cares of this world. Some versions translate it, the worries of this life. The deceitfulness of riches, and riches are deceitful because they cause us to think that we're self-sufficient and that we don't need God. We become independent from God. That's why they're deceitful. And, and the desires for other things. Those can be good things or bad things. Sometimes the good things in our life crowd out the best in our life, don't they? Yeah. So the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. The word of God is what produces eternal fruit eternal significance in our life, and it, and it proves unfruitful. What he's saying is that uh, Satan doesn't have to destroy us. He can just distract us from making Christ a priority in our lives and the pursuit of God's purposes a priority in our lives, and he can neutralize us for accomplishing anything of eternal significance if he can just distract us for the period of a lifetime. 
How can we ensure that our life matters, both now and, and for eternity? Well, the Apostle Paul had an idea, and, and he cited King David as an example, as, as somebody who lived a, a life of purpose. Notice I didn't say perfection. I didn't say perfection, because David was a flawed individual, wasn't he? And, and we know that he committed some grievous sins. That's why he's an encouragement to, to guys like me, uh, because uh, God still called him a man after his own heart. And Paul says about him in Acts 13, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. You see, David's life mattered because he chose to focus on God's purposes for his life rather than on his own. What a legacy to aspire to, that you accomplish the purposes of God in your lifetime, that you are a man or, or a woman after God's own heart. Well, as always, uh, Jesus brings his wisdom to the table and tells us how to accomplish that. He says there is a single most important thing in life. The Pharisees approached him uh, because they were always uh, debating, always having these debates over minutia. And, and they approached him and, and uh, said, they were trying to trick him as always, and they said, uh, Master, tell us, what, what is the most important commandment? And, and he responded to them, he said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. It is, it is also God's purpose for our lives. You, you see, God loves us more than what you and I can comprehend. I don't think we'll understand fully how much God loves us until we get to heaven and, and we have a grasp of, of the depth of his love for us. But his eternal purpose for, for us is that we understand his love, first of all, and that we get to a place that we can love him in return. Well, what does it mean to love God? It, as always, uh, Jesus has the answer. Is it just a, a warm and fuzzy? Uh, in our culture, when we think of love, we think of something romantic or a warm and fuzzy feeling. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about at all. In fact, when he describes uh, what love looks like, he describes it in an action-oriented way. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching." My Father will love them, and, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. One, one uh, commentator um, summarizes the intent of that passage like this. He says, Jesus is referring not to simply holding on to his teaching, but to actually acting in accordance with it, not hearers but doers, in other words, as he himself has responded to the Father. His teaching is not just interesting thoughts about God and his world that we entertain ourselves with, but rather he's revealed God and opened the way to share God's own life. To obey his teaching is to adopt God's pattern of life, but the, the condition for such obedience is, is love for Jesus. Now, let me make something clear. We're not talking about works-based righteousness. We don't earn our way uh, into the kingdom, do we? Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that by grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? It's all by grace. Uh, but what Jesus is talking about here is the evidence for what has occurred in our lives, the evidence uh, for the fact that, that uh, he's saved us and there's been spiritual transformation. And, and that's why the, the principle here is that love for God is inseparable from obedience to God. Love for God is inseparable 
from obedience to God because it, give, it gives evidence uh, to our, our love for God. And that's why Christ calls us into a, a life of discipleship, that is, first becoming disciples and then making other disciples as, as well. And Mark talks about this in his gospel. He says, and calling the crowd to him, that is Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, in my ESV Bible study notes, and this is where I'm going to make a pitch for a study Bible. Uh, if you don't have a study Bible, I'd recommend that as you get to know God and his word, a study Bible is a tremendous tool. This happens to be my favorite, which is an ESV study Bible, English Standard Version study Bible. The reason I like it is because it explains scripture as you walk through it. So for example here, and, and by the way, if, if you don't have a study Bible of your own, then sell whatever it is your brother-in-law gave you for Christmas that you didn't want anyway. And go get yourself a study Bible, would you? It'll be a great tool for you to grow in, in your life with God. But the ESV study Bible note in this case says, self-denial means letting go of self-determination and replacing it with obedience and dependence on the Messiah. Now how foreign is that in our culture? You mean I'm going to set aside my own interests and desires and I'm going to put God's interests, interests and desires and purposes in their place? That's exactly what he's asking us to do. That's what self-denial is all about. It's so counter-cultural. Self-determination is what our culture is all about. In fact, what I call the $64,000 question in life is, who will be God in my life? That's what everybody's asking. Who, who, who's going to be God in my life? Am I going to be God in my life? Are you going to be God in your life? Or is God going to be God in our life? That's the $64,000 question in life. I was struck again with the truth of this uh, as it relates to our culture when, uh, when I got this for Christmas. Now, you may think this is a little bit too profound, but um, does anybody know what this is? Somebody, somebody say it louder. Selfie stick. Yeah. Now, who said that? Okay, good. Yeah, see, it's somebody under 35. I, I knew that. I knew that would happen. This is a selfie stick. For the, un, for the uninitiated, um, what you do with this is uh, you put your camera or your cell phone on the end of it, and then you take a picture of yourself. Now, doesn't, isn't that just a, a symbol of where we are in our culture right now? I can't even find a friend who will hold a camera to take a picture of me. I've got to put it on the end of this stick. And then I'm going to post that picture someplace where nobody's going to care about it anyway. Right? Nobody wants to see my pictures. It's a selfie stick. It's the ultimate symbol of where we are as a culture. It's all about us, right? It's all about us. And that, that's where we are. That's just the opposite of what Jesus calls us to as, as his disciples. He says, I want you to set your own interests aside. And, and I want you to focus on the interests and the purposes that I have for you. That's what the rest of your life is, is supposed to be about. And, and that's why he calls us to discipleship. And a, and a disciple is a student. A, a student is, is one who sets aside, first of all, sets aside his or her own interests and desires in favor of the, matri, the master's interests and desires. A, a disciple also lives in close proximity to the master and, and learns to do 
what he does. Because principles are, are best learned not just by, by teaching, but by modeling, right? Think about when Jesus lived with his disciples. Uh, he went everywhere with them. He ate with them. They slept in the same house. They traveled around the countryside together. They were together all the time. So they got a chance to watch him not only talk about uh, the gospel and, and about the kingdom of God, but they got a chance to watch him live it out, to model it. And, and that's how that kind of discipleship instruction takes place. And finally then, the disciple becomes like the master over time in, in their character qualities, in their actions, in their behavior. Proverbs 13.20 tells us that's what's going to happen. It, it says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I, I love that. Uh, Jesus affirmed that. He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. God's intent for us is that we be like our teacher. He wants to transform us into the image of Christ. So Jesus' strategy was train 12 men to do what he did uh, in, in the countryside for the kingdom of God so that when he was gone, they could replicate themselves many times over in the early church. And that's exactly what happened. Disciples who make disciples. Jesus' last command to us, in fact, the Great Commission, was this in Matthew 18. Just before he ascended into heaven, he called his disciples together. Then Jesus came to them, that is the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples in all nation, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, that, that great commission statement is reflected in this church's purpose statement. In fact, it says the purpose of this church is to glorify or to draw attention to God by producing maturing followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, through the four scriptural principles of learning, loving, worship, and prayer. We think that, that that's representative of what occurred in the early church. And that's why we wrote that into the Constitution. So it, it describes a process that, that builds relationships, friendships, uh, genuine, honest-to-goodness friendships with folks uh, who do not yet know Jesus as their Savior. And, and then, uh, over time, leads them into a, a faith relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And then helps them to become mature disciples. And disciples who are capable of replicating themselves. Disciples making disciples again. And sending them out to repeat that process with new people. So there's our report card. How are we actually doing? If that's what Jesus has called us to do, how are we doing as a, as a church? Uh, just because a church is growing, does that mean that we're doing what God has called us to do? That's not a rhetorical question. Not necessarily, right? A, a church can grow and, uh, and become more, more uh, numerous and, and bigger, um, but are the results that we're producing consistent with what Jesus commanded us to do in the, in the Great Commission. In other words, are we engaging the community? Are we building relationships? Are we bringing people to faith, baptizing them, uh, growing them up into maturity in, in Christ, and turning them loose to, to do it all over again? Um, a, guy, a couple guys named uh, Putman and Harrington in a book called Discipleship asked that question this way. The core, the core question of effectiveness, the question that ultimately matters is whether the people who are getting saved are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Are we making mature disciples of Jesus 
who are not only able to withstand the culture, but are also are making disciples of Jesus themselves. And over, over the next few months, uh, the, the leadership here at New Hope is going to be asking you as the body of Christ to help us think through that. Help us think through our ministry strategy. Are, are we uh, accomplishing that purpose of, of making disciples who can make disciples? And instead of, uh, we don't want to be in a position where we're, we're mindlessly programming things to keep you busy with an activity that don't lead you toward maturity in, in Christ. So one of the things we're going to ask you to do is complete an on, online assessment. It's called the Transformational Church Assessment Tool. And it will help, help uh, give you a perspective and us a, a perspective on where we are as a church and, and where we need to go next in terms of planning ministry strategy. One of the things that we're going to, to, uh, to, to create and one of the opportunities that we'll create over the next uh, few months is some small group opportunities. A number of you have been asking about that. We think that disciples... Uh, grow best in, in the uh, close community of a, of a small group. You can go deeper that way, uh, both in relationships with those around you and also uh, into God's Word in, in that way. It's also a great way to engage with, uh, with others who don't yet know Christ and to engage in service, to be missional in our community. So you'll see those opportunities uh, develop over the next few months. All that is is to say that uh, we want to talk about how discipleship leads to transformation. Why, why is that so important uh, in our world? Well, spiritual transformation is the process of, of becoming like Christ in our character and our actions. Uh, once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God's game plan for us is, is to become like His Son, Jesus Christ, in the, in the way that we think, in the way that we behave from day to day. And that's what Paul was talking about when he, when he talked about spiritual formation to the Galatians. The Galatian Christians, which he led to Christ, he started that church, but then he went back to them and he was impatient with them because they weren't making the progress they should. He said, My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And again in Romans 8, Paul describes how God uses life events, uh, both good ones and bad ones, uh, to make us like Christ. He says in Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, both good and bad, encouraging and, and uh, discouraging and painful, uh, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's you and me, among many brothers and sisters. But what we need to understand is that that good that the verse talks about in Romans 8.28 is defined in, in verse 29. The good is not our comfort or convenience. It's not to make us happy. It is to make us like Jesus Christ. And sometimes that is a painful process as God reshapes us. It requires suffering. Finally, Paul talks about uh, who does the work of transformation in us and, and how it happens. He says uh, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face. That unveiled face is a reference to the fact that when we, before we can come to faith, before we can understand the gospel, the Holy Spirit has to reveal it to us. He has to do a work in our hearts so that we can understand what the Word of God is saying. And when He does that, then the veil comes off and we're able to see. Paul explains that in this chapter. And, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the, the glory of the Lord, that is Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
So let me ask you now, help me analyze this. Uh, what is it that's happening to us? What is it that Paul says is happening to us in this verse? We're being what? We're being transformed, right? Transformed into what? In the, into the image of Jesus Christ, that's right. God is remodeling us from the inside out in, into the image of Jesus Christ. And, and when does that happen? Take a look at the verse. When does it happen? At what point in our experience does it happen? When, when we are... When we are beholding. There you go. When we are beholding, exactly. Uh, that, is, that means when we are in the presence of, when, when we are learning from, when we are with Jesus. Uh, that, that's when we are being transformed. You can't be with Jesus. You can't be in the presence of God and not be transformed. You're in the presence of God this morning. You're in the presence of the Holy Spirit this morning. You cannot leave here without being transformed. If you're open to that, if you're a believer and you're open and you're open to the Holy Spirit's influence in your life, you will not leave here this morning without being transformed. God will do something in your work, whether you realize it at a, in your life, whether you realize it at a at a conscious level or not. And and does it happen all at once, folks? No. How do we know that? It happens how? I'm sorry. It happens gradually. Hazel says absolutely, Hazel. And the way Paul describes it here is is by degrees. He says, from one degree of glory to another. It, it's like, almost like changing colors, gradually changing colors over time until we become a different person. You've seen uh, pictures of people that have been morphed over time. Well, that's what God is doing to us. He's morphing us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's stripping away, peeling like layers of an onion, peeling away the things that, that displease him and that are of this world and, and allowing the, the character of Christ and the life of Christ to, to bubble forth so that other people can see that in our lives. That's what he's in the business of doing. Who does that work according to this verse? Holy Spirit, exactly. The, the Lord who is the Spirit, right? So spiritual transformation happens when we put ourselves in the, in the presence of God. We position ourselves to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. John Ortberg wrote the book, uh, The Life You've Always Wanted. I didn't put it in, in the book list, but I should have. Great book on spiritual transformation, how that happens. The life you've always wanted. He says, he says uh, we, we have to put ourselves in the way of the Holy Spirit. It's not a do-it-yourself project, but we can position ourselves for the Holy Spirit to, to influence. You folks have done that this morning by being here. You position yourself for the Holy Spirit to, to influence you and to transform you. Um, but it takes place when we're with Jesus. That's why the disciples were with Jesus for three years, weren't they? And he transformed them so much just by being with them that uh, the Jewish leaders of the, of the day noticed. Uh, they took notice in Acts 4.13. Now, that when they, that is the, the PhDs of all things religious in uh, that culture at the time, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. These were blue-collar fishermen. They weren't theologians. But when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, there's a cause and effect there. We're transformed when we're with Jesus, just as the disciples were. And, and we're with Jesus when, uh, when we're with Jesus through the Word of God, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
and, and through the community and the close fellowship of the body of Christ. That is, the Holy Spirit uses each of us to transform the other, you see, as, as uh, God speaks through us. That's the pattern that Jesus followed with his disciples as well as, as in the Acts 2 church. This is a brief description in Acts 2 of what that Acts 2 church looked like, what the early church looked like. And then I'm, I'm going to ask you to listen and, and help me um, understand what the church did that positioned them to be influenced by the Holy Spirit and then how God responded, okay? What the results were. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done by the, through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That was very countercultural at the time. Now, nobody did that at the time. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Okay, what kinds of things did the church do in order to position themselves to be influenced by the Holy Spirit there and to be transformed? This is the audience participation portion. They were together. That's very important. What else? They, they were learning. I'm sorry, somebody else? I'm sorry? Yeah, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, it says, right? Uh, what, are the, what is the apostles' teaching today? Yeah, right here. We got it right here. Same thing, same thing that they heard. We've got it right here. The apostles' teaching and uh, letters, as well as the gospels, that uh, four historical accounts of, of Christ's life. So, what else did the church do? Uh, well, they ate. They had a lot of meals. They had a lot of potlucks together, right? Yeah, as well as the Lord's Supper. What else did they do? They, they helped others. They served each other, right? Uh, that service is an important piece in the spiritual formation puzzle. Uh, what else did they do? Okay, yeah, they sacrificed, certainly. Now, now what, what results do you see? First of all, in the people, in that community, what results do you see in that passage? How did the people in that community feel about the church? Yeah, they had favor, right? They had favor with all the people. That's outside the church. The, the, the people from outside looked at that church and they said, wow, what's going on there? Whatever it is, it can't be explained on a human level. It pointed them back to God, you see, when they asked questions. And, and what else happened there uh, that God did? What did God do as a result of them positioning themselves for the Holy Spirit to influence them? There you go. There you go. Others, others joined them. God added to their number day by day those who were being saved, you see? Focus on teaching, prayer, fellowship, serving, led to not only to favor with people on the outside, but it led to God blessing the church and uh, adding to their number on the inside, more people coming to Christ. But here's an important point. Being comes before doing. You know, we're all such do-it-yourselfers. We, we want to make everything a do-it-yourself project, even spiritual formation. But spiritual formation is not a do-it-yourself project. Even the disciples had to wait 
for the Holy Spirit, uh, didn't they? Jesus said, no, I don't want you to go out there and just wing it. I want you to go back to, to uh, Jerusalem and you wait for the Holy Spirit to show up. Then I'm going to empower you to do what I want you to do. But don't just go out and try to do it yourself. It, it can't work that way. Putnam, Putman and uh, Harrington observed the same thing. Before we do, we must be. As we press into our relationship with Jesus, he leads us to be right in the other spheres of our lives. If we will connect with Jesus and be transformed by him, he will take care of everything else that we're concerned about. That's what he said to us too. Seek first, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness and all these other things will be added to you, right? So Jesus made it clear in John 15 that, that results, that is, things that matter for eternity only happen through our connection with him. That's what abiding in Christ is all about. This was a mystery to me for a while, but I, I think it's clear here. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay, I'm going to play 20 questions with you. What, is it, what does it mean to abide in Christ? It's not, it's not about trying harder to be Christ-like, trying to behave differently in our, in our own effort. Right? Abide in me means to continue in a daily personal relationship with Jesus that's characterized by trust and prayer and obedience and joy. That's, that's what comes out of abiding with Christ. So, so what are those results that we see in this passage? What are the results of abiding in Christ that we see in this brief passage in John 15? What happens when we abide in Christ? We bear much fruit. Thank you, Hazel. And, and fruit means uh, those, those accomplishments of eternal significance in our lives and in the lives of those people around us that God uses us, that God uses us to, to make happen in others' lives. What was the other one? I'm sorry. God, thank you, Jenna. Yeah, God will answer our prayers, exactly. Your prayers will be answered. Now, this doesn't mean going through the Sears catalog and saying, I'd like one of these and three of those. And it's, it's not about that. You see, when you're abiding in Christ, your desires will be aligned with what His are. And so you're going to ask for things that God wants you to ask for so that he can release his power into that situation and do his work in another person's life. And so that's why all our prayers will be answered because they're in line with, with God's will. What else will happen when we're abiding in Christ? What are the other results? Okay, joy. Yeah, a joy is a gift from God. And I, ha I have friends who are going through incredibly difficult circumstances, but they'll say to me, Gary, you know, in spite of it all, I, I just... I just experienced that joy and that peace that comes from God. And, and that's what Scripture tells us. Romans 15, 13 says uh, that God is the God of hope, that he gives us his joy and, and his peace 
through the Holy Spirit as we trust in Him. Those are gifts from God. Um, the other thing that happens is God is glorified. You know, that was always kind of fuzzy to me. I thought, what does that mean, that, that God is glorified? But what it means is that His name and reputation are celebrated in the world around us. Let me give you an example. Uh, how many of you saw Stephanie Angel's uh, editorial in the Lansing State Journal on Christmas Day? A few of you, anyway, huh? Um, her, Stephanie Angel, if you don't know her, she's a wonderful woman of God. She goes to New Church here. She's also the big cheese down at the Lansing State Journal. She's the managing editor down at the Lansing State Journal. Uh, so she wields a tremendous amount of power in the local newspaper. She wrote this editorial that I've included in your study packet on, um, on Christmas Day. And it, it's a wonderful uh, testimony, and it's a wonderful example of glorifying God where he's placed you. She begins by, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, just first couple lines. Uh, she begins with a quotation out of Colossians. She says, your, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience bear with each other and forgive one another and over all these virtues put on love which binds us together in perfect unity and then she goes on to tell how she taught that lesson to her kids when they're growing up she identifies herself as a follower of jesus christ and she says you know these principles ought to apply in the way that we deal with each other in politics and in race relations and in the lansing area community where there seems to be so much violence recently that that uh that if we applied these biblical principles there, uh, we'd be so much better off. And, and she writes a wonderful editorial um, to that end. Well, that draws attention to God. It brings glory to God. It, it, it points people back to Scripture and says, if we applied God's way of doing things, we'd have a much better uh, way to live in the Lansing area. So I, I told Stephanie, I, I uh, Facebook messaged her. Are, are, you, are you impressed by that? I did use Facebook Messenger to send her a message yesterday. I said, can I copy uh, that editorial and, and uh, share it with the folks this morning? She said, uh, by all means, please do that. And I, I thanked her for being salt and light where God has placed her in, in uh, the Lansing State Journal. A, a wonderful example. So uh, the other thing that will happen when we abide is, is that we'll abide within the sheltering protection of Christ's love. Uh, we have the confidence that nothing can happen to us without God's allowing it to. And finally, as someone mentioned earlier, we'll have the joy of Jesus Christ himself. That's, that's what he promises. That, allow, that joy that allows us to rise above the immediate circumstances, that's why it's joy and not happiness. Happiness has a lot to do with what's happening to us right at the moment. Joy does not. A joy transcends that. It's a gift from God and allows us to rise above that, that kind of thing. The other thing that... Uh, and, that, and that's what Paul was really writing about when he, when he wrote in Galatians 2.20 that I've been crucified with Christ. It's that power that we have from Christ's life within us. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We ask Jesus to live out his life uh, in those situations uh, where we, don't, we can't love somebody or we can't be what we need to be in that situation. Jesus can do that for us if we will ask him to do that, and that's what Paul's talking about here. And, and part of that is, is that uh, the character qualities of Christ come out in our life. One of the things that happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God begins that remodeling process uh, um, from the inside out. And, and the character qualities of Christ start to come out in our lives. 
And so we start to see the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 22 says, uh, 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are evidences over time, not immediately perhaps, but over time those are evidences in our life that there's been spiritual transformation, that God's on a remodeling project in our, in our lives and, and that he's working away at it. Now, uh, do those things happen all at once? No. It, it's, a prog- it's, a, it's a life's work. It happens incrementally over time. But here's why it matters. It, it matters now and it matters for eternity. It's because we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture. What I mean by that is that there is, uh, among many in our culture, especially younger people, that there is no understanding of the fundamentals of Christianity. There is no understanding of the Bible or any uh, credibility or weight given to the Bible's authority as a, as a rule for living in their lives. So uh, in many ways, when we're talking to folks who don't have that foundation, um, we're connecting with them in a different way. We have to connect with them in a different way uh, because they may not see the Bible as any, any credible uh, basis for authority. And so um, we're living in a post-Christian culture and, and uh, one that's increasingly churchless. Uh, George Barna uh, just uh, wrote a, a new book called Churchless, as a matter of fact. And, he, and he, his uh, research documents uh, how many people um, are churchless now in this country. He says over the past decade, the number of churchless adults has increased by 30%, by 38 million people just over the past 10 years. It's estimated that 43%, or 156 million of the U.S. population is, is unchurched. That's, that's equivalent to the population of the eighth, and the eighth largest country in, in the world right now. Um, let me ask you this. Here's a, here's a quiz question for you. Uh, ten years from now, which country will have the largest Christian population? Protestant Christian population. Which one? China, exactly. China will. China, the church in China is exploding, as it is in, in many other parts of the world. Uh, where persecution is most intense, that seems to be where the church is uh, exploding right now. Uh, like in, in Iran, I, I think I mentioned uh, the other night to some of the guys, my friend Rahan, who comes from Iran, he's 32 years old, um, he came to Christ in Iran, he's full of uh, joy, uh, but he's, he's, he said uh, he was running a house church in his, in his home and for three years until the Revolutionary Guard showed up and, and uh, shut it down and threw him in prison. He, he said, Gary, people are coming to Christ so fast. He said, we, love the, we hate the government because they're so brutal and repressive, but we love the government because, because when they crack, every time they crack down, the church explodes. And, and he said, he said we, had, we had a house church at one point, and then a year later we had 80 house churches, just like, like that. People, he said, people come to Christ. People are so disillusioned with Islam and with the repression of this regime that he said they, they come to Christ so quickly that you, you can't hardly get the story of the gospel out before they say, I, I want to believe. I, I want to belong to Jesus Christ as well. So that's what's happening in other parts of the world. But in, yeah, yeah, praise God for that, right, John? But more than half of those in this country born between 84 and 2002 have never been in a church. One-third of the churchless say that they have an active relationship with God. In fact, 15% uh, fit the born-again criteria that, that Barna uses for his research. Uh, more than, than half say that 
faith is very important, but almost half see no value in attending a church. Uh, Many would respond favorably to an invitation. This is why it's important that we reflect Christ and that we live an authentic life before the people that we deal with because many would respond favorably to an invitation to church or to a small group by a trusted friend and a friend who resembles Jesus Christ. Uh, Many would also respond favorably to a church that regularly and visibly serves the poor. You see, our our reputation uh, matters as individuals. It matters as a church in in our community. And it matters because we have a mission. And the churchless need to see Jesus Christ alive in us before they're willing to take that, that next step and consider faith. Paul says that we're ambassadors. He says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the the righteousness of our God, uh, the righteousness of God. The the credibility of the gospel, folks, hinges on our example. And, And we may truly be the only Bible that many around us will ever read. And that's why it's important that we be transformed, and that we live out the love of Christ to those around us. The other reason is it matters is because we'll give an account to the master and we'll receive our reward from him. Paul says, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, that is, Lord Jesus Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Again, it's not about salvation, but what we did with what we were given. Think Parable of the sower, uh, excuse me, parable of the talents. Remember the, the faithful servant? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Uh, and, and then the, the unfaithful servant uh, who just kind of buried what he had in the ground. Uh, you don't want to be the unfaithful servant. We, we want to be those that, that Jesus says to us, well done, uh, good and, and faithful servant. How do I become more useful to the master? What's the next step of obedience uh, that, that I should take? Well, that for many of us, it's, it's to immerse ourselves in the word of God. That is the first step toward transformation. Immerse yourself in the word of God. You'll be transformed by it. Why? Because it's alive. It's not a textbook. It's not an owner's manual. It's unlike any other book in the world in that it is living and powerful, Scripture tells us. And uh, this is what Paul says about it. All Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. You'll get a sense of that when you dive into the Scripture, don't you? Uh, Those of you who are Bible students and you you dive into the Scripture, you get a sense that there's more going on than just assimilating information, right? God's involved in it. All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of the things that I'd recommend is that you begin one of the systematic daily Bible reading plans that I put in your study notes. There are three in there. One side of uh, uh, one of those plans is the whole Bible in a year, systematically. The other side is the New Testament in a year. That's what I'm going to challenge you to. That's what I'm going to be doing over the next year. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that you can step up to me anytime and say, Gary, I want to see your, your, uh, your planner. I mean, your, I want to see the, where you check off the boxes in that plan, and, uh, and I'll show it to you. So that, that keeps me accountable. But you take up that challenge with me read through the New Testament in a year. There's also a, a chronological plan in there that will allow you to read through the Bible in a different way, uh, chronologically, according to the order in which the books were written historically. You might want to do that. 
But I'm going to ask uh, Dave Armstrong to come up here a minute. We're going to do just a, a, a quick man-on-the-street kind of an interview without the street. We'll have the man, but not the street. Dave is a, a guy who's part of, the, uh, part of a Thursday morning group. Uh, Every Man a Warrior is what we're studying. But it's a, a small group of uh, guys that get together and, and study. And Dave made the m- mistake the other day of, of saying that, just volunteering, that he had read through the Bible la- uh, this year uh, on his own initiative. So I asked him if I could interview him about that. So tell me why you decided to read through the Bible in a year, Dave. Well, Gary, uh, I've attended church um, like this for a number of years. And uh, uh, realizing that my knowledge of the Bible was fairly limited, uh, I just felt that it was time about a year ago that I take a deeper dive and make a commitment to just to learn more. And so, you know, opening up the Bible and, and having the discipline to go through that, I just thought was the right place to start for me again to, to just deepen that understanding. Okay, and how did you go about that in a practical way? Well, um, I'd been reading um, Our Daily Bread, which is a daily devotional many of you probably have read, and it has a, a, a reading plan in there. Each day, along with the devotional and, and a Bible verse, uh, there's a, a, a couple verses that you can read to get through the Bible in a year. So I, uh, I chose to use that as kind of my guide. Um, I travel a fair amount, so it was, it was hard to take a full um, you know, study Bible with me. Um, so I downloaded a life application Bible onto an iPad, and uh, so I could read that at home and also carry it with me in my bag when I travel for business, and I just made it a part of my daily routine uh, for a year. Okay, and, and how, did, how did you work that into your routine? When did you, when did you read? Um, typically when I was at home um, after dinner, you know, between about 7 and 9 o'clock at night sometime, usually took about a half an hour to get through those verses mm-hmm. depending on how much deeper I wanted to go and reading, you know, some of the uh, application study notes that go mm-hmm. with, with each verse. So a half hour to 45 minutes a night, um, got through it in pretty good shape. And, and what impact do you think it had on your life and your relationship <laughs> with God and your, your view of the world? Well, as I've told you before, Gary, you can't, you can't read the Bible and not have a positive impact on your life. Um, I found that it continually wanted me to learn more. And reading through the Bible at, at such a relatively high level and going at a rapid pace, you, you, you just get a really good overview, but you really don't have a chance to dive deeper. And so what it's done in me is that it's created, I think, that desire to want to stay in the Word, to continue this journey um, now that the, the actual study period is over, the reading period is over, and just deepen my faith uh, through, through being closer to Him on a daily basis. Okay, and is it something you'd recommend to other people? Well, I certainly would, and, and I'm a great example that if I can do it, anybody can, Gary. Now, <laughs> now I should tell you, Dave's the CEO of Greenstone Farm Credit Services. He travels a lot. He's a very busy guy. He's got a lot on his plate, and, and I, I bring him up. He's also a very well-disciplined guy. It's obvious that he gets physical exercise on a regular basis and does all the other things that all of us should be doing, right? Uh, but Dave, if Dave can do it, uh, with the workload that he has and the demands on his, his time that he has, then all of us can do it too. So he's a great example of discipline, great example to me, and I appreciate your sharing today. Thank you very much. It takes a lot of moxie to get up here in front of a whole group of people and, and talk about it. So I appreciate your, your bravery, David. Uh, the other thing that I'd recommend to you is I put a, a, 
a package of verses, some of the fundamental verses to the faith. In, in your package there this morning, I'd encourage you to memorize and meditate on selected verses. And what you'll find is that God will use those to transform you, to transform you as an individual. He'll also use those to give you a toolkit for talking with other people in your life. And you'll find that when you get into a spiritual conversation with somebody, the Holy Spirit will bring that verse to mind and bring it to bear on that conversation, and you'll be able to access it easily. I'd recommend a daily quiet time, time of solitude in, in Scripture reading and prayer, and a few minutes in prayer and, and journaling that so that you can preserve it. Um, there's also some upcoming men's and women's ministry opportunities. In, in uh, January 14, uh, 13 and 14, men's and women's ministry will be starting up again. Those are some wonderful opportunities to connect with others while you, while you grow deeper in your relationship with God. In the back of the uh, auditorium this morning, um, we're going to sell a, a book called Seven Basics, Strong Roots for Every Christian. It's kind of a primer on the, the basics of our faith and, and how to take the next steps in your growth with God. It's by Beth Jones. I, I think it's very good. It's on sale for only five bucks back there. So you can't hardly afford not to, not to have it. And uh, there will be a, a beautiful woman selling uh, those books in the, in the back. Uh, actually, it will be my wife. She'll be, <laughs> she'll be selling those books in the back right, at, right after the service because I forgot to get someone else to do it. So she graciously, <laughs> she graciously uh, agreed. Finally, um, consider joining one of our small groups when those become available. It's a great way to, to connect with people on a deeper level and connect with your God and, and go deeper with God at the same time. Now let me conclude with one verse by uh, encouraging you. I, I want to give you a picture for how God sees you as the, as the church of Jesus Christ. He says in uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race. Have you considered the fact that when Jesus Christ did what he did on the cross, he created a whole new race of people? That's why Paul says you're, you're neither Jew nor Gentile anymore. You're all one. There is a new race of people that you belong to that is unlike any other. And, and it is worldwide, and, and it is this race of uh, followers of Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's go out into the world, folks, and be the people that God has called us to be, those transformed followers of Jesus Christ, those disciples of Christ. Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, I thank you for these folks. Uh, for their lives with you, for the, the individual way in which you're working in each life to work out your purposes. I, I pray that you'd make each one of us open and receptive to your Holy Spirit's leading in what that next step of obedience is for us. And, and I pray that, that uh, as, as Paul said in Philippians, that you'd complete that good work which you've begun in each one of us, that you'd continue to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, and that you'd allow us to have a powerful impact on the network of on those in the network of relationships that you've placed us in, so, so that uh, we can accomplish uh, things of eternal significance in their lives uh, because of the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We ask all these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.